Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome to the DFD or Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. Here, we want to discuss all things dairy farming. This podcast is about getting information out that is going to help your dairy operations succeed. Our goal is to bring you timely information on beneficial topics. We plan to bring in some of the top names from the industry to share on the topics they have studied and more importantly, are passionate about sharing with you, the listeners. I hope everyone enjoys this week's episode and thanks for listening. Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. We are super excited this week. Uh, As many of you know, it's been very hot outside lately. And so I think that ties in perfect with uh, some of the conversation we want to have today. So as always, I have co-host Keith with me. Do you want to just say hi there, Keith? Yeah. Hi, everybody. As we mentioned two weeks ago, uh, we have our mystery guest on the line here today, and it is a vet uh, by the name of Dr. Reg Clinton. So, Reg, do you want to just give us a little bit of your background, and then uh, we'll get started with some of the topics we want to talk about today. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I'm happy to be here, uh, happy to be in out of the heat, and uh, I guess a little bit of background for those who don't know. I've been at Kirkland Vet Clinic for uh, 20 years now, uh, seems like just yesterday but uh, it, it wasn't, um, and so we've, we've been through lots of, of changes, been through lots of summers, and uh, happy to give some, some thoughts on uh, what's going on out there these days. Reg, you get the prestigious honor of being our first outside of the organization guest, so I think we uh, should give him a standing applause right now. So. <laughs> it's been interesting because it's like we're waiting for the other shoe to drop out there for heat stress. Uh, for you know years everyone's talked about heat abatement um, you know fans and sprinklers and lots of extra room and watch your dry cows and your close-up cows and it seems like they're they're coming through it not bad right now Um, and like I said we're waiting for the other shoe to drop and maybe it has something to do with the difference in humidity versus other years because it certainly is a, a drier summer than we've experienced on memory that's you know discounting the shortness of our memories but it's definitely a little bit different. There's, there's signs of heat stress out there. It's, it's repro, it's butterfat, it's milk, it's transition cow health. It's all those things, but, but maybe some of the barns are a bit better suited for it. And maybe it's uh, an overall lack of humidity that we've experienced so far. Yeah. And I don't know, Keith, what you're finding. I was actually out on some farms this morning. Uh, one in particular, we were using those anemometers uh, to kind of just measure uh, wind speed, measure temperature in the barn and then also measure relative humidity. And I would say I agree with that. Like the humidity definitely is normally ranging in that 40 to 45% relative humidity. And that's down, I would say at the cow level, like getting right down where they're laying down. Um, and then the, but then the temperatures are ranging in that in the barn, even we're seeing high twenties, low thirties, and then that speed, depending on where the fans are allocated. I mean, we've been on a few farms the last uh, over the last week here doing it, playing around with it a little bit, having some fun, but also showing the farmers, where there is areas of opportunity there. Have you used those at all, Reg, the anemometers, just to measure? We have, and um, have compared with a couple of other uh, advisors out there. I know Jason Sutherland has done some work as well. Uh, one thing I looked at out of just out of interest was the wet bulb temperature. So it, it looks at the saturation of the air. And uh, it sounds like I know what I'm talking about, but uh, I know a little bit about it. <laughs> and on those, those really muggy, muggy days, that um, gets to be quite an issue there where the, right. it's just so yeah. wet. 
Yeah, I think the other point too is it hasn't been overly warm at night. Like it, it has been getting down below 20 degrees. So I know talking with some producers, they're changing some uh, fan settings and things like that where they're turning their uh, their shutoff temperature down a little bit lower just to try and get some of that extra heat out of the barn at night and uh, get some good cool air pushed in there. And it's kind of kind of helping, I feel. But yeah, with the an- uh, anonymeter, anometer, the wind mead speed uh, <laughs> device, I can't say that. Uh, yeah, it's been kind of, it's been really interesting, but you don't realize how warm it is in the barns yeah. that do have some air moving, but you know, you get looking at the, at the thermometer on the things and yeah, we're seeing lots of 30, 32, 20, 29 degree stuff. So. Yeah. I think the big thing is a lot of guys have the impression their fans are moving air. And I would say on the backs of the cows, when they're standing up, the air is usually pretty good up there. But when we put it down at floor level, um, it's surprising. It, it goes to almost nothing in a lot of those places. So that's where I think most farmers are seeing maybe having that fan angled a bit more to try and move the air down towards the cows and their feet uh, so that we hopefully increase line time as well, right? Not standing all day, every day. Regardless, that's not why we have Reg on today. It was just some interesting uh, interesting findings we've had out on some farms, uh, but it does tie very much into what we are talking about. And I think the biggest thing we want to really hit on today with Reg on the line is not so much just heat stress, but what impact heat stress has on reproduction specifically. Do you want to just kind of touch on that a little bit more broad stroke there, Reg, a little bit about some of the big things we're expecting to see with the impacts of heat stress and directly how that relates to uh, reproduction in cows? Yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty important, obviously, and uh, especially when you you throw on top of that that we've all been trying to calve more cows out between June and September to hit uh, you know previously established incentive days and and extra uh, fill extra credits or things like that. For me, I mean, we can talk about the the fine details of uh, which repro program, and we will talk about that. But it, it all goes back to transition cow health, and so if we can do a really good job uh, with the dry cows uh, and transition and keeping them cool and eating as fresh cows, uh, a lot of the repro falls in line. It's just, you're shaving a bit of, you know, times, uh, length of time that they're gonna express heat. You might uh, expand or uh, some of the cycle days and things like that. But if you get them going on, on uh, proper transition, then, then you've already had a big step forward. And that includes cooling them and, and lots of water and, and proper diet and, and these days, lot more talk about decad and and things like that too so so i think for me the repro um we can we can establish a really good program but you got to have her started off correctly first yeah do you see more i guess of a shift towards time day i programs in the summer compared to in the winter or sorry that was my question (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well well said (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, the the thing about repro programs, uh, whether it be double offsync or offsync plus, or you know going to a pre-sync or or whatever whatever the flavor it is that you choose, it is um, because you're not seeing the heats uh, or the cows are you're getting a higher number of them that are just anovular um, and and not quite going on on all cylinders. So we establish these breeding programs in the summer um, and usually it's probably later in the summer when guys um, realize or, or the vet does the math a little bit and sees that we're behind on number of cows that we've uh, got pregnant or, or had inseminated. And so you throw a, a big safety net program in and then they carry on through the fall and through the winter because they work well. 
do you do you see a shift in, like just in general into more timed AI programs compared to you know maybe pedometers or visual sites like uh, you know we've had to you know which could have been the norm maybe five years ago. Yeah, there was a real shift away from timed AI to go to observational heats and use of technology for activity and things like that, and and they worked well. But there's been a move back towards uh, timed AI from a, either labor or from a, you know, they realize that they 25% of the cows just aren't quite working on the activity monitor, maybe the way that they should be. So they've adopted more of the timed AI. So I would say yes. One question I had, I guess, kind of tying into that, if we, if we took sync programs right out, of the, uh, right out of the equation, what practical steps should farmers be taking to improve reproduction if they're not going to go with a time system? Where, if, if you're talking to a farmer, where would you start? Uh, I would still not to, to beat it to death, but it, it needs to be beaten to death is transition. So get them going well in the first place. The best herds for repro numbers have always been those that observe the cows more regularly and at a set time of day and away from uh, feeding time. So if they make a point of walking through after a uh, majority of the cows have all been up and eating uh, day, uh, morning and night, uh, they're spending a regular set time doing that, 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, those are the guys uh, and girls that always had the best repro um, ability on the farms. I've seen it as, as good as on one farm where they actually had a bit of a reward for catching any cow in heat. So, um, you know, incentivized for employees or incentivized for uh, everybody's working towards the main goal on the farm to get as many cows uh, with semen on them as possible. Yeah, and I think from our end, that's one thing, like when we are analyzing records is usually the biggest gap is the insemination rate where they're just not catching the cows that didn't get caught pregnant uh, when they got bred off their last breeding. And the other part of that, the, the big, big part um, after transition is also lameness. So if they can get their hoof health in order as well, then you will get more expressive heats um, and you will get cows that feel more like getting up and, and goofing around or even getting up to eat instead of laying in the stall or standing back. Those two things I would say, aside from anything that you did specifically to address repro, transition and lameness would be get those, get those houses in order. Is there anything on the conception rate side that producers can do to increase that? Or is that kind of a static number? It's farm uh, specific. So it's farm static, but one farm might have a 33% conception rate and the other farm will have a 43% conception rate. And some of that is going to be just how well the cows are doing. Some of it's going to be the accuracy of heat detection and, uh, and the, the care and attention that's paid to AI of each individual cow. Of course, you know, sex semen comes into that too, but, but that aside, it, it's, you're not going to change it too much on farm, uh, but from one farm to another, it can change you know, within 10 points pretty, pretty quickly. So you can have a farm that has a, a 16% 21-day preg rate and a 45% conception rate. The conception rate sounds phenomenal, but there's so much money left on the table at the 16% 21-day preg rate. And the difference is number of cows that they breed. So they're extremely accurate on finding a cow in heat and extremely good at getting semen into her, uh, resulting in the 45% conception rate. But they're just not putting enough semen in enough cows. There's other places that have a 20, you know, 25 plus preg rate 
and they're sitting in the mid to high 30s for conception rate. So a lower conception rate, but a much more profitable position to be in based on what the preg rate number is. We see that like when we get analyzing records and and one of the biggest things that drive milk production and and we can feed all the additives, food, food, dust, whatever we want. But if your cows aren't getting pregnant enough, where our hands are kind of tied, right? Like if you're, if you're, if a herd's constantly running at, you know, 190, 200 days in milk, you know, it's tough to get milk and you could probably get a little bit more bang for your buck on the feed side of things by just having a fresher herd. I know I had that uh, conversation this morning with the producer. He goes, you know, ideally, where do you want us to see, like, where do you want to see us on uh, days of milk? And I said, if you can stick between that 150 to 160 all the time, like milk comes much, much easier. Let's focus in on the transition period there for a little bit. What are you looking for, I guess, in that area? Well, as a veterinarian, of course, the standard answer is disease rates uh, for a number of RPs and number of DAs and, and uh, milk fever. Measuring ketosis, I think, is uh, becoming much more uh, common out there for guys to do it on a cow side basis. And I think that's the right answer to monitor that. The subclinical ketosis, finding out what your number is and treating it accordingly, treating those individuals and then making the correction on a herd basis so you don't have as many. There's a lot of money to be made there that then goes on to help you in your repro and help you in your you know, milk performance and, and your fat and uh, protein components as well. I do think for me, what I would like to look at are cows that barge out of the gate after calving and away they go. And then you're constantly monitoring your herd level of ketosis on top of that. I'll touch on DCAT a little bit because I watched um, um, a DVSC thesis defense uh, last week and they put some numbers uh, to the economics of DCAD versus um, using calcium boluses uh, post-calving. And the DCAD uh, wins almost every time because of the impact that it has on milk production and repro performance. And even though it's expensive to feed for the three weeks, uh, or even four weeks if you're if you're uh, doing a 28-day close-up or something like that. It, it still pays. The, the boost on milk and the boost on repro is definitely well worth it. And, and you get just a healthier cow when you're watching that pH balance in her. And I guess to comment on, on Reg's uh, comments there, it really does pay. So I've been monitoring a couple herds now, and the biggest increase I've seen is on peak milk. Like I've got herds that I started in January, uh, getting their DHI reports every month and looking at how the peak milk has climbed and it's climbed three to four kilos. So, you know, that extra buck or buck 50 or whatever it is that you're spending on the DCAD is a lot cheaper than trying to fix a milk fever. And then you don't know what you're losing on peak milk if you're not using it as well, right? So let's take a little bit of a step back in the process here and let's look at heifers a little bit. What are you seeing as some effective ways to improve heifer reproduction? Heifers are, um, are interesting for, for years. I've said um, breed as many heifers as you can in, in uh, June, July, and August because you, you might be taking a hit on your cow conception rate. So breed as many of them so that you don't have a, a gap in your calvings coming up in nine months' time. And, uh, you know, heifers are getting a little bit more attention for abating heat stress. Certainly, we're, we're feeding the heifer a better ration. And uh, I think Keith had said earlier in our discussion just between us was, um, you know, being flexible on your age of uh, insemination. 
Um, so whereby you might have been at uh, 14 or 15 months, dropping it down a little bit lower uh, during these times to, to get a few more heifers pregnant. Uh, for those, I think uh, most heifers have activity monitored of some sort on them. And I think it's working well with heifers. Um, there's been a few herds that we've seen, you know, maybe a little bit extra blips at 21 days and, and had to review just how high a blip it was to warrant putting semen in and things like that. So there's a little bit of a learning curve on it with heifers. It's, it's like a bunch of rowdy teenagers on Friday night walking around town with a backpack. But um, <laughs> I think in general, we've done a better job in heifers in the last few years, right from, you know, freshly squeezed out of the cow uh, all the way up. And the only way you can breed a 12 month old heifer is because she's grown to uh, the right percentage of her mature weight. Yeah. And I think, I think we can use the heifer repro as a management tool in the dairy herd because you know, if you're always around that 14, 15 months and doing a good job of getting in calf, you know, your age at first calving is going to probably sit around that 24 months. And with things like incentives or, or you get gaps in heat stress like this. So we're going to see this heat stress come back and bite us in the butt here again in the spring, next spring, because we didn't get them pregnant now. So getting those heifers pregnant now will help us fill that gap and kind of keep a more constant calving cycle. Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of uh, residual effects of heat stress, right? Like you still have transition cow problems in October from those cows that didn't do anything in, in July and August as far off dry cows. Uh, their intakes were off or they were heat stressed and, and that just carries on through to when they calve in, in September, October and, and don't really just take off out of the gates. And then there's the, yeah, how your calvings per month lines up after that based on any failures that you've had. Uh, um, or even any problems that you've had at transition where those cows aren't even in the system to breed anymore. That's an interesting point, Rich. Like, what do you, as a vet, look for the amount of calvings per month? Like, do you look at a percentage of the herd, so many per hundred? Like, what's your, what's your uh, go-to number? <clears throat> yeah, usually you want 10% of the herd calving per month, right? So that's always kind of what we went for on that. I don't know if that's uh, been updated um, lately. Back to your point too, Reg, on doing better jobs is with heifers. Like, have you seen a trend to lower age at first calving? Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, we've read a lot of the literature out there on, on where the sweet spot is for calving them out. Where I'm at right now, I'd like to see that heifer at 22, 23 months. I think things go easy uh, for breeding on the heifer end and things go easy enough on the calving end. Sex semen, you have to watch a little bit that you're you're not sacrificing too much on fertility. I think they've uh, done a good job at um, establishing for, uh, for using sex semen in a heifer. You want to breed a little bit later than you normally would keep up with the uh, conception rate. So there's a lot of little things to watch for that, but I don't, I guess myself, I don't see a need and it's not from having to go calve them out or do C-sections on them or anything like that. I just don't see the need to calve them out uh, much younger than 20 months at all. So I've been, Looking at a little bit at ROI versus feed efficiency. So uh, I did a little bit of math. So I used 30 cents a kilo for dry matter and a lactating diet and then 70 cents a kilo for milk. And it was pretty astonishing, actually. So if you can go, say, from a 1.3 to a 1.7, you're going from a 3 to a 4 to 1 ROI. So I thought it was really interesting. And then I got digging down into it a little bit on to try and find like 
some concrete numbers on lactation curve where feed efficiency is because generally a fresher cow is going to convert dry matter more efficiently into milk than a later lactation cow um, just simply because uh, of uh, production numbers like that fresh cow for what they eat compared to what they output is quite a bigger gap. I think the later lactation cow, you got to worry about uh, the fetus uh, and things like that. Like the, there's a little bit of energy being partitioned to uh, feed that calf and, and keep that calf alive as well. So it's just something that I was thinking about. And I didn't know if Reg, if you've ever looked at that, I know you always talk about getting cows more pregnant around the farm. So, um, and days of milk is probably, or repro is probably the number one driver to uh, feed efficiency and milk production. So I just didn't know if, if maybe you had some antiquated thoughts on that. Yes and no. Um, I think uh, I remember we had one guy that bought a, uh, a Juno and, uh, and ruined his feed efficiency um, because uh, cows ate a lot more feed when it was pushed up. Um, <laughs> so I think it's a, I think it's a, an interesting number to look at, and and you can't do it without looking at the. Um, the whole needs of the cow, right? Because uh, in the she's making uh, good feed efficiency and early lactation and and mobilizing energy stores on her body, and then later lactation she's feeding a calf and and uh, repartitioning some of those energy stores back for use when she calves out. So some of that's hidden in the background there too. If you look at if you want to look at it on a on what you're getting out of that stall on the herd and you had 150 day and milk cow that's in there versus the 220, it goes to the whole efficiency of production for the whole herd. That goes back to, you know, some of the things we said about repro. So if you can have a cow in there that's doing it really efficiently, obviously that's going to be better for your, your major um, cost input of feed to get that uh, return on it versus a, a later days and milk cow that's not going to be doing it as easily. So, I guess I'm 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 on board with feed efficiency and watching it, and measuring it, but I think I have to consider a few other things with it as well. And I don't think you can chase it. Like so many other things we talk about, you can't chase it by itself. I want to uh, just touch on three programs, I guess, um, and all of them are important at any given time. But historically, we always use pre-sync or pre-sync off-sync. And so that's looking at two prostaglandin shots, uh, two weeks apart, cherry pick off anybody that shows a really good heat. And if they don't show a heat, then you throw them into an off sync program, basically 10 days after the second prostaglandin shot. So that's always worked well. I've always had a little bit of trouble with that because it seems to me that every bit of research and every um, thing that we do is trying to get that cow into a progesterone producing stage of her cycle. And when you do a pre-sync, uh, you give prostaglandin, you lyse that, uh, that CL, and, um, and she runs through a cycle. There's, there's other issues around there that if she's in a negative energy balance or has some subclinical ketosis or a slightly lame, uh, or maybe gets a bout of mastitis or, or something like that, she might stay in that low progesterone phase that will impact her fertility for at least one, if not two cycles. So whereby it worked well for showing signs of heat and also worked well for cleaning any uh, underlying endometritis problems, uh, ended up you know, running through a cycle, they clean out, away you go, that um, 
I guess that that's also been shown to be about 50.1% effective. So it's, um, uh, it's a program that has worked. Uh, it definitely focuses the labor and the attention on when she's going to be in heat. So you can watch that cow and get semen into her. So it, it served the purpose that way. The double off-sync program, it's not necessarily new, but it seems to be a lot more uh, penetration on farms there. It's a 27-day program, two off-sync cycles back-to-back. You can either breed them off the first one if they show a good heat, but more commonly they're being bred off the second off-sync cycle. And it is extremely good at getting cows that aren't cycling properly to cycle properly. And it's, uh, it's labor to get them there. But when you put semen into them after the 27 days, you've got a much greater chance of getting her pregnant at that time. So you should see a, a boost in uh, preg rate. And in that case, you should see a boost in, in conception rate as well. Uh, we're not talking the 10% boost, but you should get a relatively important boost on conception rate from doing that. Would that be comparable to say something like a cedar program? Like, or do you use a cedar in conjunction with say like an off-sync or double off-sync? Asking for a friend, I guess. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Cedars, uh, extremely popular, extremely valuable tool because they're a progesterone releasing device. They're embedded with progesterone and they increase the cow's level of progesterone. So the cow, if she's cycling really well, she's going to make uh, somewhere between uh, five and nine nanograms on that. So you're getting a nice little boost with a cedar. And if she's not cycling, just simply throwing a cedar in for a week and not doing anything else might be enough to get her going. If you put the cedar in with a straight off-sync program, so put it in on day zero and pull it out on day seven and do the injections, you're going to get a good boost in, um, in conception rate. And you're going to get that because you're going to bring cows that aren't cycling properly up to speed and you're going to get them pregnant. Now there's some, there's some increased pregnancy losses on some of those cows um, because they weren't quite right in the first place. Um, but uh, not enough to warrant not doing it. And then I guess that'd be leading my next question. And what about twins on these programs? So that's where um, double obsync or a third program that is called GGPG, which is basically a GnRH shot one week before you do the off-sync program. Those two programs will reduce twins, period. So it's, it's actually really good because the, um, if you have more cows that aren't cycling properly when you get them out to the breeding window, so by 60 days, they're just kind of getting around, feeling good, they're gonna start cycling. A lot of those cows are gonna have double ovulations. So because a low progesterone environment uh, was experienced there for too long, uh, the follicular waves aren't quite lined up, and the first one usually pops off two follicles. Uh, we see that a bunch on fresh checks. When we're checking fresh cows at 30 days of milk, you see a lot of, of two CL cows where they've ovulated twice. And uh, so for those cows, if you put them on an off-sync and extend that out, and that's their first real good heat, you're going to see more twins. And that's what they saw originally on these, on these herds that they started off-sync on, was you got a lot of cows pregnant that wouldn't have got pregnant for, for weeks, um, and a bunch of them had twins. Uh, our top two twin herds in the past 10 years were both um, prostaglandin and observe heats and breed off that. And so they were both really good producing herds. 
and um, and definitely had a bit of a dip in body condition score, uh, but milked really well. Voluntary waiting period was out in that 60, 70 days, and those herds ran 10% twins, which was just quite crazy, considering the average is around three. I would put up our uh, double off sinker GGPG herds uh, up against you know, uh, activity or, or observed heat herds and say that we'd probably run lower on them. And then I can say a couple of them are in the two to 3% range for sure. Um, the one I know on, on almost full double off sinks about a 1% twin rate. So I think, uh, right now, Luke, I think we should get into the question period yep. into the, into the question bag. So I think I'll kick it off. I had the first one and this is another hot button one, Reg. I hope you're ready for it. What causes cystic ovaries? Remember, <laughs> <laughs> you have two nutritionists on the line with you. Uh, bad, bad connection. I, I got. I got a... <laughs> um, well, that's a that's a long question. I think uh, usually it is um, either poor transition or poor fresh cow uh, performance or, or health in that and. I think that basically the way that I've come to terms with it in my mind and how I uh, put it out there to producers is that I think cystic ovaries are kind of like a defensive strategy for the cow where the uh, system's not quite right. So she just puts everything on hold and says that it's, it's not good right now. I'm not, I'm not ovulating. Um, biochemically, I think just her hormones aren't in sync there. And um, you know, whether that is uh Anything from acidosis to high NUNs to lameness to whatever else residual is going on in her uh, her history there, it, it's a whole whack of things. Um, we've we've paid I guess less attention to cystic ovaries because they're easy to treat with um, with a timed AI program. And uh, interestingly enough, for you guys, uh, your sakes. If I walk into a herd and, and he says, these cows are killing it on butterfat, like they're running 4-1, we're going to have a good preg check. There's no doubt about it. If, they're, if their rumens are, are going well and they're, uh, and they're doing that, they're going to have a good preg check. And the, um, and the fresh cows, there's not going to be hardly any uh, cysts uh, or anovular cows. Can you have a cyst and have a cow still ovulate? Yes. Okay. I have found sit and the advent ultrasound has been great to show just how unimportant uh, cysts can be. Um, they're very important for the animal that has it, but uh, we found big uh, fluid filled structures. So what historically we've always called cysts on, on pregnant uh, cows. So you've got a good CL on one side and you've got a good pregnancy and you've got a big cyst on the other ovary. So are they incorrectly diagnosed uh, historically or currently? Uh, but not an important factor. Um, another question that did come in was, I mean, we've touched a little bit on it, but just to go a little, dig in <laughs> a little bit deeper is, when does double off sync give most return and what gains can be made and when does the cost outweigh the gain? So it's kind of a few questions in one, but uh, when does double off sync give the most return? Let's start with that. I think you have to look at the overall herd pregnancy rate to make that uh, assessment. So if you, I think it was Tom Overton or Mike Overton, one of the Overtons had a nice graph uh, quite a long time ago and showed the dollars to be made per cow 
by improving 1% on your preg rate. And so if you're sitting at 15%, you've got, you know, a couple hundred dollars to invest in a repro program to get you to move upwards. If you're sitting at 25 or 26, you don't have as many dollars. You've got tens of dollars. Uh, I think I'm not going to remember correctly. I think it's between 20 and 30 dollars to invest in the repro program to make the farm more money. That being said, we've had some very good herds switch over um, to double off sync um, to hit um, over 30, and they're seeing the biggest bang for their buck in uh, avoiding the summertime dip that they always saw on their farm. So running a 26, 27% preg rate, but dropping it down to 18, 19 in the summertime, they invested in some heat abatement, but also went to double off sink. And the last two summers, well, last summer and this summer looks like it's heading the same way so far uh, based on the last couple of herd house. Um, they're sailing right through it. If you're a lower preg rate, there's a lot more dollars on the table to do it. That's what I was just going to say. That's a great point. Like the, the lower you are, then the more you have to gain, right? So that's a, that's a great answer. Yeah. So I had a question come in uh, through Twitter and it was, is a 40 preg rate on cows possible? This is one of those long pauses we're supposed to have. <laughs> yeah. Reg, Reg there. <laughs> you know what? It, it really is possible. And, um, you know, it's interesting when you look at, um, put it in context of new facilities. Because when guys build new barns, um, they put up uh, a barn that they're going to fill over time. And one of the benefits of that is that they also put up a really big, usually, not always, put up a big transition area. And so you have uh, about a what looks like a 40% stocking density on the transition area and uh, you know, a 70% on the, on the fresh cow area and those cows just take off and you know, this herd's running a crazy good average. And then over the years, four or five years later, when they start getting towards capacity, everything gets a lot harder. So I think in those situations where you have everything ticking along on transition health, you, know, you have to hold back breeding a cow because she's showing heats well before your voluntary waiting period. Those 40% numbers are possible. And I guess maybe to add to that question, economically, does it make sense to chase that? It's going to kill cows because you're not going to need as many. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll be, you'll just have a super fresh herd, right? Or yeah. you'll create another revenue opportunity to sell fresh animals or fresh heifers or something like that, right? Exactly. If, if you can't make money by getting cows pregnant that easily, then um, uh, maybe you've missed an opportunity uh, because you can always sell fresh cows where you can always improve the performance per stall for your herd. It's interesting kind of getting out into the weeds in some of these questions and, uh, you know, thinking hypothetically. Well, maybe some of the takeaways from this is, um, you know, not letting the trough dip so low, um, you know, because it does uh, spiral out of control if um, you got to play catch up all the time because it puts pressure on every part of the system. Um, you know, like you see that when guys have challenging levels of inventory that they've got to feed a higher haylage diet because they're low on corn silage. And then in the fall, they switch over to a highly, higher corn silage diet to save haylage. Um, same thing if you dip too low in your preg rate because of heat stress or you have a big whack of lame cows. Invariably, what ends up happening is that you're going to have a giant whack of cows pregnant all at the same time when you play catch up. 
which then begets the problem with transition crowding and everything else, right? So I think just maintaining, uh, not not dropping as much on these troughs. Is, if you could give, like you were just saying there, like some takeaways. So what would be the number one thing you would say to a producer that's struggling with reproduction during the summer months? I would say, um, you know, the easy answer right away is get on a good repro program. But the the honest and the right answer, I think, is to say, get your transition cow health and your lameness taken care of, um, because that has repercussions all the way through till, till Thanksgiving. Uh, space, uh, fresh air, cool cows, and a really good diet for the transition cows. Monitor your ketosis uh, to make sure that it's working and uh, put all of your attention on that for, for these months. So when we have our transition cow episode, I think we know who our guest is going to be as well. <laughs> that might have to be a panel that one no i i agree with you 100 percent on that and and like i said we've been talking to a bunch of producers about that and this one this morning when we we're talking about the anemometer uh the one area we were looking at specifically no fans over the dry cows whatsoever and the air that was coming in was coming directly from uh the, the manure storage and i'm just going and he's talking about having transition issues and it was kind of like okay what do you think might be going on here so let's uh let's go take a look and sure enough yeah there's no air movement and the air that was there was very still um so i i, I agree with that 100 percent. and and another problem we were dealing with with another rep uh was dealing with similar things there's just no air movement no fans over the dry cows i mean we need to take care of those girls because they're gonna they're just definitely gonna take care of us the rest of that lactation if if we do take care of them during the transition period so i like uh that. Well, and you have to think about too, is that not only do these high fiber diets create a lot more heat inside that cow, so does the growing fetus. Like it's like a little fireball inside that cow. So she's not only getting challenged from the inside, she's getting challenged from the outside uh, heat as well. So I think anything we can do in these months will pay us going down the road. So, you know, Keith, that's interesting. And, and maybe we want to, um, maybe you want to close out now, but a uh, question for you. I thought about this last night. It's, it's kind of funny you brought that up. You think about a wood-burning stove and the, the lignin and the, and the cellulose that's in there um, and how much heat that generates. Uh, is there an opportunity for guys to switch to, you know, some of the uh, non-forage fiber sources that it doesn't have as much in it in the summertime to help out with keeping the fiber going through and maybe not creating as much heat by having to churn through those, those uh, thicker sources? Yes, <laughs> no they they uh they definitely do help and i know we've gone with the strategy too just like something like oat hulls too that act more like a filler um because i find that straw is uh when they're eating that like they've got to eat that dry matter and it just creates so much heat in there but the other thing we have to worry about too is energy intake like you don't want to get too high you know you kind of want to stay under that 17 megacal now we lose a little bit of energy uh intake this time of year just because of lower dry matter intake but uh I think there is opportunities for your beet hulps and your beet pulp, sorry, and your soy hulls and things like that to be uh, included in some of these dry cow feeds to uh, as a strategy for uh, for a uh, different energy source in the uh, in the dry cow diet. So, yeah, just before we do close out here, Reg, was there any other final thoughts you want to leave with any of the listeners today? Uh, I think that the barns are cooler than they uh, used to be. I think guys have done a good job. Um, there's always room for improvement if you've got. A fan on every post, put two fans on every post. Robot guys, there's uh, lots of opportunity to put showers coming out of the robots and things like that. 
uh, have one of your advisors, you know, measure the heat levels in the barn so you know where you're starting from and, and what you can do to improve it. There's no anemometer reading for stale air. <laughs> it's just all movement. But, you know, I, I think just uh, us as advisors, we need to harp on on the, uh, the volume of fresh air and uh, keeping the cows cool, whether that's through the day or at night or both or all the above. And just to give a little plug there, I guess, as well, we did have Pedro Nogaira on a few episodes ago doing a whole episode on heat stress. So if you guys did miss that, I definitely take a listen to that because he goes over a lot of good information on that as well. Um, but I think it's it's summer. This is what we're talking about. These are the issues that are facing us uh, on a daily basis is we're dealing with heat and we're trying to figure out ways to to mitigate that stress. So, Keith, is there anything else you wanted to add there before we wrap up? No, I think uh, when we get into the summer months and well and all year in general we just got to think about cow comfort because uh if they we look after those girls they'll look after us so i think uh you know making sure that we have fans and sprinklers and, and things like that in the barn to keep them cool uh lots of lots of fresh bedding so they you know you can entice them to lay down and uh making sure that you get the hoof trimmer and maybe a little bit more frequently in the summer just to uh just to kind of help some of those girls that might be standing there trying to uh, cool themselves off to, uh, to help them out. So that's great guys. I think for me, the one big takeaway from today is I think if we want to improve uh, reproduction in any time of the year, I think, I think it was pretty bold today that we, we want to improve transition health. If we can improve that transition, it's going to just make it that much easier and the sync programs and all those things do become a second thought because we've already got them well underway. They're, they're going downhill instead of uphill to get there. So I think with that, guys, we will put a wrap on today. Um, Reg, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. And uh, I definitely think there will be some opportunities to pull you in when we do have that uh, transition discussion. We're not exactly sure when that'll be, but I think coming up this fall, that will, will definitely be a topic of interest. So we will uh, we'll try and pull you back in for that. And for anybody else listening, uh, definitely keep an eye on Twitter for all of the information we're posting. And with that, yeah, thanks so much, Reg and Keith. I just wanted to say uh, thanks again to Reg for his time for this. I know he's uh, very busy uh, running a practice and doing a lot of cow side consulting and, and still out in the field every day. So we really appreciate this, Reg. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me, guys. And um, just for the record, I'm much prettier on a podcast than on a Zoom meeting. So, <laughs> Why do you think I decided to go the podcast road? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We all, we all have... Uh, voices uh or faces for radio so radio. <laughs> awesome well thank you so much both you guys uh reg yeah a huge appreciation for you jumping on today and uh, i know you're busy and keith thanks again as well and uh with that we will let you guys go for today thanks for now hey guys thanks for tuning in this week we really are trying to keep this podcast product and ad free However, if you have any questions about what you've been hearing, we strongly recommend reaching out to your nearest SureGain dealership. We have reps across Ontario, Canada, and the USA that would love to come to your farm and offer solutions to those problems that have been keeping you from achieving your goals. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you think might benefit from this information or on your social media platform of choice. I also encourage you to tune into Keith Schweitzer's YouTube channel. We'll be releasing podcast episodes every other Thursday, and Keith will be releasing YouTube videos on the opposite weeks. We appreciate your support and look forward to sharing with you real soon.